Father, we come before you tonight with humble hearts, knowing that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And Father, we so desperately need your grace. We do live in a world and in a culture that is oftentimes marked by pride and autonomy and really opposition to the way of Jesus. And we live in a society that in many ways has rejected you as Lord and replaced you with all sorts of idols and false gods. As Jeremiah says, empty cisterns that bear no water. And many have hardened their hearts to your grace and your word. However, we know that no one can thwart your plans, Father. We know that revival can break out even in the bleakest of circumstances. So we do trust that Second Chronicles 7, uh, 14 can be true of us. If your people who are called by your name humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, you will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their lands. And Father, we long most importantly for healing, for spiritual healing to come to our lands. We long for a time where we would see widespread repentance and faith and return to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Father, we know that tomorrow is a major day for the culture and climate of our nation. And we know that you have instituted the government and all leaders as our ultimate authority under your sovereign control. Yet as Americans, we do have the immense privilege of getting to be part of the process of choosing our leaders. So I pray that you allow us to wisely steward that gift, that you prompt us to vote for candidates who uh, most approximate your heart, your will, and your desires, and lead us to the wise and most God-glorifying conclusions as we use uh, those liberties. And Father, we pray that the election results, regardless of what they may be, would not lead to increased violence or unrest or division in our nation, uh, but somehow lead to increased unity. I'll be the first to confess that I don't see that right now, Father, but uh, I know that you can do anything, even, even the things that we can't ask or imagine right now. Father, we ask that you would be merciful uh, towards our nations, uh, our nation, and that ultimately um, our nation would turn from our many sins and turn our face back to you, and that we might truly live up to our Pledge of Allegiance, that we would be a nation under God. So, Father, we lift these requests up to you, and now as we turn our attention to your word in the book of Colossians, we pray that you continue to reveal to us what the Lordship of Christ means, not just theologically, but also practically in our lives. Help us to see how we can better live under the Lordship of Christ in all of our uh, just ins and outs of everyday life. So be with Sam, fill him with your Holy Spirit, and guide our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for joining tonight. If you're watching online through our stream, we're glad that you're here as well. Hope you're doing well in your home. Hopefully you're wearing your pajamas or something comfortable in your living room. So thanks for joining us. Have you ever heard of the Stanford Prison Experiment? It might be one of the most famous psychological experiments of our time. The year is 1971, and the U.S. Navy was having issues in the relationships between their prisoners and their prison guards. So to try to figure out the nature of this problem and why the guards were being less than kind to the prisoners, they enlisted a man named Philip Zimbardo. He was a professor at the Stanford University. He was a smart guy. And he decided to put together an experiment where he created a mock prison, where he took college students as volunteers 
and put them inside the basement of the psych hall and created a prison. And by the flip of a coin, they were either a guard or a prisoner. And there were 24 volunteers, and it was split right down the middle, 12 and 12. He began the experiment, and Zimbardo was basically the superintendent of the prison, and then he just let everything go and watched the magic happen. Well, the results weren't so good. They canceled the experiment six days in because the guards were being, let's just say, less than kind. They forced the prisoners to use the bathroom in a bucket in their cells and then didn't let them empty the bucket for six days. As forms of punishment, they would take away the mattresses and make the, pres- the prisoners, the prisoners, these are college students, right, make them sleep on the floor. They in- employed all these types of psychological uh, tactics, in- including isolation. There was one prisoner who did not want to have this breakfast sausage that they gave him for breakfast, so he went on hunger strike. Well, the guards responded by shoving him in a closet in isolation and pounding on the door, yelling, Prisoner 416, prisoner 416, prisoner 416, over and over and over again as a way to get into his head. It's no wonder that they canceled the experiment six days in. Now, some people consider this experiment a failure. Some consider it a success. (laughs) Maybe we consider it a little bit a mix of both. But why? Well, because Zimbardo unearthed a sinful tendency that exists in all of our hearts. Not just the need to be authoritarian, though that was certainly part of the issue for the guards, but it was deeper than that. There's this desire in the flesh of human beings to be superior, to be better, to try to have a leg up on somebody else. And we don't just need to look at this experiment to know that's true. Look at the world around us. Think of the caste system that exists in other cultures that's been a reality for centuries. Think of our culture. How often do we evaluate one another, put ourselves in separate classes based on what we're wearing, what car we're driving, where we work, who our friends are, where we live? Maybe we just need to look in the mirror and look for a moment at our own hearts and realize that maybe those tendencies can be a temptation in our hearts as well to feel better, to feel superior than somebody else. So then it should make sense that the false teachers in the church at Colossus preyed upon this tendency, this sinful inclination in the hearts of people to feel superior, to feel better, to feel like a separate class of Christians. That's exactly what they did, combining this superiority complex with their spiritual life. That's the exact nature of what Paul warns us in this text. This theological threat, this theological kidnapping attempt tried to play on this superiority complex, combining it with their spiritual life in two simple words that we mentioned last week, Jesus plus. And last week we were general. Tonight we're going to be specific as Paul outlines three separate theological threats to true theology that are not just a reality in the church of Corinth. Church of Corinth, Church at Coloss, but a reality in our world as well. As I've been looking through this text, I'm just amazed at the relevancy that these same theological threats to some extent are in our world today. So we have to understand the nature of what Paul is saying. 
commanding us to look, to be aware, to watch out and make sure that we aren't taken captive by a spiritual kidnapping attempt. So all three of these teachings tonight play into the superiority complex. It's just a reality of this text. But as Christians, we have to fight back against the temptation to feel superior, to feel better, to feel like we're in a separate class than other followers of Christ. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's not separate classes of Christ followers of Christians. It's at the essence of what it means to be a Christ follower. We're all part of the body. We're all believers together. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And when we start to feel superior to others because of our religiosity, then we're not keeping in step with the Spirit. We're not being obedient to what Christ has commanded us to do. So we need to diligently fight the temptation of religious superiority in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians 2 tonight. As always, it is so helpful to follow along in your own copy of God's Word. Whether you're old school and have a Bible, whether you're using your phone, it doesn't really matter to me. But I'd love it if you'd open up and follow along in your text. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. I'm just going to read the whole passage, and then we'll work our way through it. Verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that's from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is it if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to things that perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, why don't we zoom in by looking at those first two verses. Verse 16 don't let anyone pass judgment, verse 18. Don't let anyone insist on these things. The nature of the problem of these false teachers is they came in commanding things, commanding that the church in Colossus do things in addition to the gospel. In essence, it was a Jesus plus mentality. But what were they adding? What were they tacking on to the gospel? Food and drink, festival, new moon, and Sabbath. Most certainly, Paul's referencing the Old Testament, the ceremonial law from the Torah. To put it simply, these false teachers were saying, in order to be a real Christian, in order to level up as a follower of Christ, in order to be a mature Christ follower, you have to follow Jesus, you got to believe in Jesus, and you have to obey the Jewish law. We've got to make sure we're on the same page about what the law is. We use that word often, but when we talk about it biblically, it's referring to the first five books of the Bible. Maybe we call it the Pentateuch or the Torah. And it was the covenant, maybe the Bill of Rights for the people of Israel, outlining what it looked like to be a faithful nation following after God. And today, we often divide the Old Testament law into three categories. It doesn't always divide this cleanly, but I think it's helpful to think in these three terms. There was the civil law, which were rules that talked about Israel as a nation following after God. 
They just applied to Israel as people. Then there was the ceremonial law, which included the food rules and the sacrificial system and circumcision, part of their religious structure. But then third, there was the moral law, like the Ten Commandments. Now for us today, I think the moral law still applies. You think of the Ten Commandments, that hasn't been done away with. But what these false teachers were commanding was that these, the, the Christ followers in Coloss needed to follow the ceremonial law. It was Jesus plus circumcision, or, or Jesus plus these food laws, or Jesus plus remembering some of the festivals from the Old Testament. And I think the most famous restriction that we see in the Old Testament scripture was no pork. It's probably the most famous food law that we see in the Old Testament. There were other laws as well, festivals, uh, celebrations that they were supposed to follow, other foods that were considered unclean. And chances are these these false teachers were promoting ideas, promoting laws that were actually outside of the Old Testament canon. They were adding rules upon rules and commanding the church to follow them. They were saying in order to be a real follower of Jesus, you need to follow the law. And I mean, if we're being honest, we're probably not seeing that on Twitter or Instagram every day. You need to be a faithful Christ follower by following Old Testament law. It's not that common in our society, but it might be more common than we think. I even had a conversation a couple weeks ago with someone who was trying to convince me that in order to be a faithful Christ follower, we needed to follow the festivals and the celebrations from the Old Testament. But we have to remember what we talked about last week, that Jesus set us free, not just from the curse of the law, but the obligation of the law. That when Jesus died on the cross, we no longer find our way to God through the old covenant promises. We find our way to Jesus through the cross. So we aren't bound by those restrictions from the Old Testament. And we have to understand that there were certain things for the Jews that were black and white, like food laws, that might be gray for us today. And that's fine. That's, that's what it means to live as a, a new covenant follower of Christ. But Paul's not talking about food preferences here. He's not talking about personal preferences. Really, he's not telling the church what to do and not to do. Instead, he's warning them of these false teachers who were imposing their gray area laws on them. To put it bluntly, Paul says that if anyone says that as Christians were required to follow the Old Testament laws to be a real Christian, that's a theological kidnap attempt. And Paul proves it in verse 17, where he compares the shadow and the substance. Where Paul says the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant rather, is like a shadow, but the substance, the body, belongs to Christ. Think of it this way. Imagine we took a young adult trip out to Mount Rushmore. Has anyone been to Mount Rushmore? I've never been there. Would love to get there someday. It'd be a cool place to visit. But imagine we're there, and oh, who should we pick on tonight? Ah, oh, Fritz. Pick on Fritz tonight. So let's say Fritz is our historian, and Fritz is waxing eloquently about the history of Mount Rushmore, but for five or ten minutes as we're standing there in this beautiful sunny afternoon at Mount Rushmore as a young adult family, and the sun is casting the shadow, Fritz talks for five or ten minutes about the beauty of the shadow that the faces are casting on the ground, and goes on and on about the precision and the lighting, and we'd be all like, Fritz, what are you talking about? Why are we talking about the shadow when we can look at the real thing? 
Might be a silly illustration, but that's what Paul's getting at here. Because the Old Testament, the Old Covenant law, was a foreshadowing of Jesus' coming. It was a picture of the Savior. But now, looking back, we don't have to settle for the shadow because we have the real thing. We have Jesus. Paul's saying, why settle for the shadow? Why go back to the Old Covenant when you have Jesus? Our way to God is not through the Old Covenant. Our way to God is through the cross. That's exactly what Paul is saying. That's the danger of these false teachers is that they maybe sounded pious, they sounded religious, they sounded mature by adding these extra rules to what it meant to be a Christ follower. But it's dangerous because it suggests that we somehow get to Jesus by what we do. It separates Christians into different classes. It promotes a superiority complex and ultimately it adds an addition to the gospel. So that's our first threat tonight is Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus the law. Now let me be clear. I don't think it's wrong for a Christ follower today to abstain from certain foods or certain meats, for example. I think it's possible, um, it's probable for someone to be a vegetarian for economic reasons or ethical reasons. I think it's possible for someone to have a conviction, a spiritual conviction in their heart that they shouldn't eat a certain type of food. I think that's possible. That's what we would call a gray area. I think the New Testament is pretty clear that there's a lot of tremendous latitude regarding what we eat. It's a gray area. Someone else might feel compelled that they should worship God with their church family on a certain day of the week. It's, it's possible for us to have that sort of personal conviction. But the problem arises when we impose those gray area convictions and mandate them for other people. So how do we interact with one another when maybe we have different views in the gray areas? I think Paul outlines that very clearly in Romans chapter 14. And if you're interested in in how to reconcile differences in gray areas, you should read all of Romans 14 this week. It's a great commentary on, on how to walk together in the gray. I just want to read the first couple of verses of the chapter. Romans 14, 1 through 3. As for one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he can eat anything, while, one, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Without getting tripped up on the word weak, be too long for us to investigate the nuance of that passage. I want us to understand the big picture of what Paul is saying. There might be a brother or a sister in our young adult family that has a different conviction in a gray area, like what we eat or what we drink. For example, there's some believers that have convictions about their diet. There's other believers that say, you know, it's okay for me to have a drink every once in a while. There's other believers who would say, it's my conviction that I'm not going to have any alcohol. It's what we call a gray area. Well, it's, it's not a gray area when it comes to the influence of alcohol. The Bible's clear. We cannot be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. We have to be filled with the Spirit from Ephesians. Getting drunk is not a gray area, but, but I believe that drinking alcohol is a gray area. So what happens when one person says, you know, this is okay for me, and another person says, no, this isn't okay for me? Well, we provide extra grace to one another. If we're hanging around someone that's not comfortable with alcohol, then we can choose a Coca-Cola instead that day. 
If we're hanging out with someone that's decided not to eat pork, well, it's probably not a good idea to be frying up Newski's bacon when they walk into our house. We just need to be a young adult family that decides that these gray area issues are not going to be a big deal. And I know that this first Jesus plus the law might not be a big temptation for us today, but we have to understand the principle. We have to fight the superiority complex that can be prevalent in our hearts. For someone who feels that it's okay for them to have alcohol, is not better than the person who's convicted by it. The person who's convicted about drinking alcohol should not feel superior to the person who exercises their Christian liberty. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We need to fight that superiority complex when it comes to matters of preference. So that's our first theological threat, Jesus plus the law. To look at our second one, let me read verses 18 and 19 from our passage, Colossians 2, 18 in 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Well, this is where the threat to good theology takes a 180-degree turn, because Paul's talking about the law, he's talking about rules, And now he goes on a tangent about these special, supernatural, spiritual experiences. Because we have to remember the background from the church at Coloss. They were saved out of that spiritualism, that mysticism, that sensitivity to the spiritual realm. So it would make sense then that these false teachers would appeal to their old way of life. And the false teachers were saying things, they were overemphasizing the spiritual realm. Ascetism, it could be translated false humility. They had a heightened sense of pious behavior. And it says that they were rambling on and on about special visions that they had from God. They were puffed up in their, what the text says, sensuous mind. Pridefully going on and on about their special spiritual experiences. And though this is a radically different theological threat than the first couple verses, this is a threat that is far more apparent in our world today. Even in the last century, in Christianity, there's been a heightened sense on the supernatural and on special spiritual experiences. Let me translate that to what it might sound like in our world today. In order to be a real Christian, you have to speak in tongues. Or in order to be a real Christian, you have to have special visions or speak in a special prayer language. Or God speaks directly to the most mature Christians in dreams and visions. Now let me be clear. I'm not taking a shot at charismatic theology in general. Let me explain what that term means. Charismatic theology advocates that the miraculous gifts, spiritual gifts like signs or like um, tongues and healing and prophecy and miracles still exist today, that the Spirit still gives those gifts to the church to be used. The other, another camp then believes that those miraculous gifts faded away when the New Testament was completed. And then there's a whole lot of people that are somewhere in the middle. (laughs) And we could go on a long tangent and talk about charismatic theology and non-charismatic theology, and it's not in the text, so we're not going to go there. I'm just going to add one sentence. Regardless of what we think of, of that type of theology, when I look around and see what God's doing around the world, there's some amazing things that are happening some miraculous things, some mysterious things, especially in places that don't have access to God's Word. We believe that God can do amazing and miraculous things. 
But this passage, what Paul's talking about, these special spiritual experiences, they're not talking about sign gifts. He's not talking about spiritual gifts at all. He's talking about something much different. He's talking about people who are insisting on special spiritual experiences, who are saying that to be a real Christian, to level up as a follower of Christ, to be better than other Christians around you, then you need to have a a special supernatural experience. In our world today, it's a theological system called second blessing theology. That theology believes that, sure, we become a Christian when we believe in Jesus, but we're not a real Christian we don't demonstrate our, our faith until we speak in tongues. Or you must speak in tongues to demonstrate the presence of the Spirit in your life. That's called second blessing theology. Now, speaking in tongues is a weird phrase. It simply just means talking in unknown language. I would speak in tongues if somehow on our Mexico mission trip this year I'm instantly fluent in Spanish, because if you've heard my Spanish, it's horrible. But tongues, speaking in unknown language, happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, when the apostles, the disciples, were preaching the gospel in all these different languages to all these different nationalities who were there in Jerusalem on that day. Tongues, it's kind of an interesting word, an interesting concept. Now, second blessing theology believes that tongues is normative in the life of every follower of Christ, every mature follower of Christ. But I don't think that's at all what we see in Scripture. Paul makes that really clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, verses 29 through 31. He says this, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. What might sound like a rhetorical question in the English wasn't at all in the Greek. The Greek in those questions demands a negative answer. Paul's saying, do all speak in tongues? No. Do all teach? No. So it's clear that not everyone is going to speak in tongues. So if someone insists that to be a a real follower of Christ, to demonstrate the Spirit in your life, that you have to speak in an unknown language, then that's a threat to good theology. That's our second threat, Jesus plus supernatural experiences. Jesus plus supernatural experiences. And we're in the middle of a great series in 1 Corinthians here at Highland on Sunday mornings. And Pastor Jeff is going to work through this text at a later day. I'm excited to hear him work through this passage. Maybe we talk a little bit more about what tongues are and what tongues are not. But Jesus plus supernatural experiences is far deeper than just talking in an unknown language. There's another realm, an offshoot of the charismatic movement that's very dangerous that overemphasizes the supernatural, that, speaks, that seeks a spiritual experience above everything else. It's a subset of theology that holds miracles and signs in such a high regard that basically demands that God does the miraculous today. Andrew mentioned this belief system a couple weeks ago at the third Monday worship service, which stems from a Christological heresy that actually believes that when Jesus came to earth, he completely emptied himself of his divinity so that he was only man when he was on earth. So that the miracles and the signs that he performed, he actually performed not because he was the Son of God, but because of the Holy Spirit in his life. Therefore, because followers of Christ today have the same spirit, we should perform the same sort of miracles that Jesus did. Well, friends, that's a Christological heresy because it reduces the deity, the divinity of Christ, which is a major non-negotiable issue 
for us as Christ followers. And you and I are not on the same plane as Jesus. Jesus is God. You and I are not. We should not expect to do the same sort of signs and wonders that Jesus did. But to step back for a moment, let's say we're having a conversation with someone who's going on and on about a vision that they experienced or a supernatural religious experience that they had or a miracle that they did or they witnessed. What do we do? Because we probably shouldn't just dismiss the miraculous because we know that God can work in amazing ways. But how do we discern if, if that person is, is walking in line with the Spirit? Well, I think we have to interpret the conversation through the lens of verse 19 in our passage. Let me read that again. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. The head here is Jesus. And Paul is accusing the false teachers of not being connected to the head, of not being connected to Christ. Christ is the leader, the, the head, the authority of the church. Now, these false teachers were going rogue. So we're having a conversation with someone that is going on and on about their spiritual experiences. We need to ask, is this person exalting Christ? Are they living under the lordship, the authority of Jesus? Or are they using their spiritual, supernatural experiences as a way to glorify and exalt themselves? It's spiritual discernment. Not an easy thing to discern by any means. But we should filter those conversations through the lens of this passage. Jesus is more than a supernatural experience. For us as individuals, we need to seek Jesus and not a feeling. Seeking Jesus and not just a spiritual experience. We don't need a special vision. We don't need a glory cloud. We don't need a feeling in our hearts, a certain magical moment to validate our faith. Certain spiritual gifts or experiences, they don't make us better followers of Christ. Jesus is more than just a spiritual experience. And honestly, I think this can be one of the dangers with modern worship. If you can only worship Jesus when the house lights are off, when the haze is on full blast, when the moving lights are on the ceiling and we're singing a song that was published in the last three years, is there a chance that you're more interested in the experience than the one that you're worshiping? Jesus is more important than a spiritual experience. And I wish that this danger, this threat, wasn't a reality in our world today, but it is. There are millions of people across the globe that are getting swept into the Jesus plus a supernatural experience threat to theology. So I have a piece of homework for you. I think each of us should take some time this week and watch the documentary, The American Gospel. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. If you haven't seen it, I wish I could have you all over to our house and we could have a mandatory watch party together. I would need a really big living room for us to socially distance, but that's a different story. But this documentary is that good. It is the best documentary I've ever seen. And it articulates some of these things in this theological threat far more articulately and in depth than we have time for today. And if you do watch it this week, I would love to hear your thoughts. So shoot me a text, a message, an email, a smoke signal, whatever you'd like, and I would love to hear uh, your thoughts to the documentary. It's so important for us to be alert, to be aware 
of the theological threats that are around us. They might not be in our midst here, but they are in our culture, in our world. We need to be aware of those things. Take some time, watch that documentary this week. It's not every day that I endorse a movie, so I should write this day down. As we continue in our text, Paul outlines our third threat to good theology in verse 20. Follow along with me as I keep reading there. If in Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as though you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to the things that perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. On this, this part of the passage, Paul focuses on, in on one theme word legalism. He quotes the false teachers again who made these extra rules. Don't do that. Don't handle that. Don't touch that. Don't go there. Adding extra rules on top of what was in the Old Testament. They were probably even mutilating themselves and their bodies to look more holy than everyone else. They looked pious. They, they looked like they had, they had their act together. But Paul throws these false teachers right under the bus. Why? Well, because their legalism, it fueled their superiority. That's our third threat, Jesus plus legalism. Jesus plus legalism. Legalism is a contentious word in evangelicalism today. We don't throw it out there all the time, and it can set people on edge. I want to make sure we understand what legalism is. Legalism is forcing my gray area preferences on you. Legalism is so obsessed with following the rules that it doesn't focus on Christ. Legalism turns preferences into prescriptions. Legalism believes that the way to Jesus is through following extra rules. Legalism believes that the more extra rules that we follow, the better Christians that we are. Now let me be clear. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with rules in general. <laughs> I'm a type A firstborn. I love rules, and I get really frustrated when you don't follow them. But as we look at Scripture, God has clearly outlined plenty of rules for us to follow. And that's not the type of rules that I'm talking about. Legalism adds extra rules beyond what we see in Scripture. And then this is the key, forcing other people to follow those rules in our gray area preferences. A second caveat, let me be clear, I think it's possible that we can have our own convictions. It's likely that we're going to have our own convictions in gray areas. For example, a faithful follower of Christ can be convicted for themselves that they shouldn't play cards or they shouldn't go to the movie theater. They shouldn't have certain foods. They shouldn't drink alcohol. There's nothing wrong with having those convictions. Actually, the Bible's clear that if we're convicted in those areas, that if we violate our conscience, we're actually in sin. But the problem occurs is when we take one of those convictions and we impose it on somebody else when we insist that other Christ followers follow those gray areas. Think of the Pharisees, for example, men who Jesus called whitewashed tombs. It's not what I would call a compliment. Think of a whitewashed tomb, clean on the outside, but filled with rotten flesh. Have you ever bit into a rotten apple, for example? It's disgusting. It looks great on the outside, but then you sink your teeth into it, and it's filled with bacteria and bugs. Gross. 
That's what Jesus is calling the Pharisees. So focused on the outside, the shell, the rules, the extra rules that they were following. But once you get below the surface and look at the heart, there was major spiritual problems. And that's legalism. When the focus of our spiritual life becomes the rules that we follow rather than Jesus himself, then we're beginning to tend towards legalism. And I think it's so easy for us to define our spiritual life by the extra rules that we follow because it's easy to measure. When we create three or four or five rules that aren't in Scripture, we can very easily tell when we're being successful and when we're not. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but if that's the measure of our spiritual life, we're actually shooting at the wrong target. Maybe think of it this way. When I was in college, I was part of uh, various guys' accountability groups. It's an important thing. It's an important thing for us to be able to have people that we trust, have people that we can share some things with, confess sin to, hold us accountable. That's a great thing. But I think in one way, some of these groups fell a little bit short. That most of the time in the group was occupied by talking about one sin. Lust. Now, is that a problem for Christians? Yes. Is it a problem for college guys? Absolutely. But it's not the sum of our spiritual life. So when we boil down our walk with Jesus to one sin area, we're looking a little bit like a Pharisee. Because the Pharisees were really good at denying sin by looking holy on the outside. But the goal of walking with Christ isn't just getting rid of sin, is it? The goal of Walking with Christ is loving Jesus more and looking more like Jesus. We tend towards legalism when we just focus on getting rid of sin and we don't focus on the heart to growing our love for Christ. But in verse 23, Paul actually outlines another problem with legalist tendencies. Let me read that one more time. These extra rules have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. <laughs> I appreciate what Paul's saying. He's saying that the extra rules, it might look like you're being wise, it might look that you're walking down the right path, but at the end of the day, if the extra rules are the only way you're measuring your, your spiritual health, then you're actually not going to succeed. Legalism actually doesn't help stop the sin in our hearts. And I think if we look at our lives, we know that to be true. Because when we fight against sin, we have to fight against sin not on the external level, but on the internal level. We need to fight sin at the heart level. Because sins like pornography, gossip, self-harm, materialism, language, drunkenness, and laziness, they're simply symptoms of a deeper heart problem. You know, you could get rid of your phone, but you're still going to find a way to give in to lust. Because what do we need to give in to that sin? Our heads, right? You could find new friends, but you're still going to find a way to party on the weekends. You could try to, you could limit spending, you could shred your credit card, but we would still find ways to be materialistic. Because extra rules don't fix the problems that exist in our heart we need heart surgery. We need heart transformation. Think of what Jesus said. A bad tree produces bad fruit, and a good tree produces good fruit. 
A bad tree isn't going to produce good fruit and vice versa. Our actions flow from the content of our hearts, which is actually kind of a scary thought, isn't it? Our actions come from inside of us. So if you and I look at the fruit in our life and we aren't very impressed with it, it's not going to work to cut the fruit off and staple different fruit to the tree. We need a heart level change. We need heart transformation. Which is easy to talk about, but it's hard to do, isn't it? Which I think for me is why it's so easy to begin the slide towards legalism. Because it's easy to focus on two or three or four rules, but it's much harder to think on the heart level, to ask, how can I orient and, and cultivate and change my desires to reflect the things of Christ? How can I grow to love Jesus more? <laughs> Those are the questions that I hope that we're asking in our spiritual life. How can I grow to love Jesus more and look more like Jesus? How can we change the desires of our heart? That's a big question. I think one pastor articulates our battle against sin between the the short, easy battle and the long, hard war. We fight the short, easy battle when we try to eliminate and reduce the temptation, the accessibility to sin in our life. Really make the battle easy. And sometimes that means maybe an extra rule or two, and that's fine. But we win the long, hard war by changing and reorienting by the power of the Spirit our desires towards the thing of Christ. That's a long process and an impossible process without the work of the Spirit. But when we fight against sin in our life, we need to hold both intention, fighting both the short, easy battle and the long, hard war. But how do we do that? How do we change our desires? How do we refocus the desires of our heart onto the things of Christ? Well, this might not be a very satisfying answer, but come back next week because Paul actually answers that question for us in Colossians 3, 1 to 4. And we'll have plenty of time to dive into that answer next week, how we might reorient the desires of our hearts. But I want to provide one potential answer to that question. How do we, what do we do when we don't like the fruit on the tree? Well, let's say you look at your life like a tree. And there's not any good fruit on the tree. It's all rotten. Well, that should cause us to ask a heart question, right? Has your heart been redeemed? Has it been renewed? Are you really a follower of Christ? If someone's struggling with sin in their life, there's not any good fruit, that's a fair question to ask. I know it's an intense question, but we never want to assume the gospel. Because it starts with the bad news, doesn't it? (laughs) That each one of us are sinful. And we've earned by our own behavior eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. That is bad news because of what we've done. But God in his grace sent Jesus into the world who lived and died in our place. When Jesus died on the cross, God took our sin and put it on Christ so that he died in our place so that we could have his life. And he rose from the dead conquering sin and death. That if we believe in Jesus, we can have new life. That is the gospel. If you don't believe that tonight, that's the most important decision you can make. Believing that Jesus died for you. Turning away from your old way of life and following him. 
And for those of us that do follow Christ, I wish I could say that the moment we believed in Jesus, the temptation towards legalism went away. (laughs) But it doesn't. I wish I could say the moment that we followed Christ, the temptation to feel superior, to feel better than somebody else went away. But it doesn't. We've got to be diligent to fight the temptation for religious superiority in our hearts. Not feeling superior or better than another brother or sister because of what we do, because of what our gift is. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Any permutation of Jesus plus is detrimental to our spiritual life. It's toxic in our relationship with Christ. Christ is all I need. He's all you need. Let's pray. Well, Father, thanks for the truth of your word, reminding us to pursue true and good theology. Remind us of the goodness of the gospel, that we have hope and life that we never in a million years could have ever deserved. And may we long for the day when we'll be with you forever. Father, help us be diligent, help us be alert for ways for threats to good theology, and help us balance grace and truth in our life, in our conversations, even in our small groups tonight. As we dialogue about some of these things, may you guide our discussions in Jesus' name.